0: Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Gabrielle Fundero. Gabrielle is a Renaissance Periodization Coach and is a gut health professional, and today she'll be talking to us about everything to do with gut health, the gut microbiota, and all of the misinformation we hear about it in the media today. Let's talk science. Hi, Gabrielle. How are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: Very, very good. Thank you very, very much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Um,
0: not at all. Just uh, for anybody who might not know who you are, um, let's start with a little bit of an introduction. Could you just tell us who you are, um, what you do at the moment, and how you got to where you are at the moment? How that sound?
1: Yes. Um, so I am... Dr. Gabrielle Fondero, as you said, vitamin Ph.D. Um, I am a Renaissance periodization nutrition coach. I also um, run a different form of coaching. I do video coaching via vitamin Ph.D. Um, so that's my sort of personal um Different kind of flavor because it's all via video and I'm helping folks mostly who are having some GI complaints and, you know, that often correlates with um, just struggles with weight loss and weight management. Obviously, you know, it can be a huge quality of life issue as well. So I Mm -hmm. really enjoy helping those folks. Um, I travel quite often with uh, Renaissance Periodization um, internationally to speak on um, gut health as, you know, the sort of the hot topic as it is, but I like to say, I like to call it, um, you know, like gut microbiome science just because it's a little bit less trendy that way. Um, yeah, so I, uh, my background is in um, the microbiome and skeletal muscle metabolism. So um, my research was really looking at uh, the protective, the potential protective effects of probiotics on skeletal muscle metabolism during high-fat feeding. And um, over the course of years and just some serendipitous events, I ended up um, having the ability to uh, really represent RP as as an individual who has um, you know formal training and um, awareness about the gut microbiome. And so I try to dispel myths and get good evidence-based recommendations out there and just have a really practical sort of pragmatic approach to um, uh, helping people attain and maintain digestive comfort.
0: It's it's very nice to um, actually hear that somebody who's giving advice on gut health actually has an actual academic and scientific background in the whole area, as opposed to, um, let's say, the, the whole um, glut of people who are kind of appearing right now and claiming to be um, gut health experts. Um, Just for, just for anybody who's watching, um, Gabrielle doesn't like to be referred to as a gut health expert. Okay. So we're not (laughs) going to refer to that. Um, But we're going to refer to her as a gut health professional. Um, How's that sound? Much better.
1: Yes, much better. That's usually, I I like that. Or, uh, you know, gut health communicator, educator.
0: Very good, okay. Um, So I suppose the first thing that uh, I'd like to talk about is maybe we could just kind of start with a few basics. Um, And I'm gonna get very, very basic with you, but could you explain to everybody who's watching what exactly is the microbiome? Because we hear it so much at the moment, like you were saying, it is so hot right now. Um, So what exactly is it?
1: Yeah, so it's basically the collection of microbes that inhabit your digestive tract. So it's largely bacteria, but we also have some other microbes. So we have some fungi in there. We have uh, archaea, Uh, we have viruses. So these are all just microscopic organisms. We can think of it sort of like its own ecosystem. So they're interacting with each other, and they also interact with our cells, so both our immune cells and our intestinal cells. So they help to um, produce nutrients for us. They can serve as pathogen protection, so they compete uh, for nutrients and real estate, and they can actually control the growth of bacteria or other pathogens that could be potentially um, disease-causing. And they help to educate and mature our immune system. They can modulate our immune system in beneficial ways. Uh, So they play a hugely important role. It's not just, um, you know, and it's not just one thing that we can sort of modify easily because it's a collection of organisms that are also interacting with our food, um, our exercise habits, and with one another.
0: Okay, so that's a pretty uh, uh, nice summary right there. Um, one thing that one thing that you mentioned right there was um, about the effect of the microbiome on uh, our immune function and how it modulates immune function. Um, so obviously, when we're talking about the microbiome, we're talking about bacteria. And one thing that previously people used to think about bacteria and viruses, archaea, yeast, things like, like that, people used to think automatic is when you hear those words, you automatically think those are bad. That's negative. That's something that, um, you know, you kind of want to avoid um Mm -hmm. so you're saying that it has a beneficial effect on our immune system what kind of effect or can can you talk uh, about that a little bit more please
1: yeah yeah so they could have beneficial effects they could also certainly have deleterious effects so they can actually modulate sort of what we call inflammatory tone so that is the uh to sum it up sort of the reaction of your immune system to things that could potentially cause disease So ideally, we want to have uh, a few different kind of um, uh, protective mechanisms in place to protect us against something that could cause disease. So we have anatomical structures. So we have the cells of our intestinal tract that are stuck together quite closely by, uh, by proteins called tight junction proteins. So you could think sort of it like a wall, a brick and mortar wall, and the bricks are held nice and tightly together. Nothing's going to get through that. But if we end up for, with cracks in the wall with holes, then we can allow things to leak through like water would leak through, and that could be problematic. So the uh, microbes can interact with those cells and regulate the expression of those proteins so that the the, uh, integrity of that wall can be maintained. So we want to have upregulated tight junction proteins to help reduce potential leakage of substances between those cells. Those microbes can also actually interact with immune cells So immune cells can mount a response against potential infectious agents. So they produce antibodies and other compounds that can kind of make us feel sick. We might have an allergic response to a food or another allergen, um, or when we're fighting off an infection, you know, things like having a fever, um, producing a lot of white blood cells and things like that. So the microbes can actually interact with those cells and regulate inflammatory tone. Um Some constituents of or, or some, some products that are either uh, produced directly by the bacteria or that come off of them as they're being destroyed combined to immune receptors and regulate the production of um, cytokines or um, uh, chemical cellular messengers and even regulate things like our ability to um, switch between fuels, fuel sources, substrates. So our uh, metabolic flexibility can be regulated by those bacteria as well. So it could be a, a good thing or it could be a bad thing, depending on, you know, where we fall along that You know, we're, we're constantly trying to maintain homeostasis, but if we have chronic inflammation, that certainly is problematic. If we have um, chronic um, uh, leakage of, of substances between those intestinal cells, that's certainly problematic. So um, it really is context dependent. And it's not necessarily that we have, even though we've identified some microbes that we know to be pathogenic, uh, we know to be disease-causing, in most cases, it's really about the relative abundance of those microbes, not just one that we can point out and say, oh, this is a bad guy. Sometimes a bad guy is not so bad compared to a worse guy, and he's competing with the worst guy and helping to control his growth. Uh, and in other cases, you know, we we have a, a wide array of pathogenic microbes that inhabit our digestive tracts all the time, but we hopefully have enough of the beneficial or just the commensal sort of neutral uh, microbes that help to control the population of the potentially pathogenic ones, because those guys are not going to mount an attack unless they can sense that there are enough of them that they can overcome our immune system.
0: Okay. Um, so that's really, really interesting that it, it's, it's not a very, let's say cut and dry um answer when it comes to this bacteria is bad or this bacteria is specifically good. There, there is kind of a, a lot of gray area in there. And one word that we hear so much these days, um, especially when it comes to gut health, is the word dysbiosis. And yes. I, I'm, I'm just wondering from, let's say, a, a professional like you, like you, is there a proper, let's say, accepted definition of what dysbiosis is? Um, and if so, what it is, or what do people think it is, and what is it not?
1: Yeah, I love that question. Um, so, dysbiosis um, is defined, loosely defined, as just an unfavorable relative abundance of species. And so, it's really as it's amorphous. We don't have a specific profile of dysbiosis. What we have are observations that in certain disease states, individuals tend to have higher or lower levels of some strains of bacteria. But depending on the disease state, they may have more pathogen-enriched or beneficial depleted profiles. So it may be that you're lacking the beneficial ones or it could be that you have too many of the type that cause disease but even when we compare two individuals with the same disease we may find that they have what, to, what would be considered dysbiosis but even their dysbioses look different so we don't have one specific profile for dysbiosis it's just the relative abundance of species but even when we're looking at the you know the opposite of that a healthy gut even a healthy gut looks significantly different Um, in healthy controls from different parts of the world. So we have so many factors that come together to shape um, the the diversity of the gut uh, that we can't say that there's one specific healthy profile or one specific diseased profile. It's it's kind of disease-specific, but it's also incredibly individual. So when we look at all of the factors, all of the different influences on uh, what shapes the profile of the microbiome, Really, it's just inner individual differences. It's just the sum of all of your parts explains about two-thirds of all the microbes present. And something like a disease state is a very small percentage, explains a very small percentage of the variability between two people.
0: So something you mentioned there um, kind of really, uh, like just right there at the end, really uh, kind of struck a chord with me in that you're saying that our gut microbiome, it, it's, it's it's let's say, it develops in relation and reaction to a lot of different factors about our lifestyle okay so for example it could be potentially let's say diet it could be exercise it could be stress um the one people think about automatically is is diet obviously um uh you know i you know just in preparation for this i had um you know a bowl of lentils and vegetable <laughs> stew just to make sure that i you know my my microbiome was strong for this podcast but <laughs> What other aspects of our lifestyle can, can affect the, that kind of our microbial balance um, within the gut?
1: Yeah, so it looks like when we run sort of these regression analyses. And try to find relationships between diet or exercise and um, the variability of the microbiome. It looks like diet and exercise each can explain about 15 to 20% of the variability between individuals but that's a really small percentage compared to you know about 67% that's just like looking at just two individuals just being two different people. Um, So even if we have two individuals who both do the same form of exercise they're still going to have significantly different microbial Profiles. They'll have some that are that are in common that we might see enriched in individuals who are physically active, but um, it's very it, it's a fairly small percentage. When we look at things like medication, um, using antibiotics or a disease state, we're looking into down in probably the single digits. So even if an individual, you know, comparing an individual with an inflammatory bowel disease versus an individual without an inflammatory bowel disease, um, what we've seen so far from the second leg of the Human Microbiome Project, Um, is there is about a a seven, we can explain, um, that explains about 7% of the variability between those two individuals. And antibiotics are something like less than 1%. So um, those little things, especially when we're looking at um, temporary changes, you know, taking a supplement or, you know, even just exercising for a short period of time, we may see temporary um, and, and modest changes in certain strains of bacteria. The other thing that we have to realize is there are potentially thousands of species in there. And so even if we see a significant change in something like two species, it is so small in the grand scheme of things that it's not really useful for us to look necessarily at just who's there we really have to look at what they're doing. And that material, that, that, that data just really hasn't been collected um, you know, to a, a large extent yet. So we know a little bit more about who's changing in terms of just the species present, but in terms of, you know, what genes are present and then what genes are actually being expressed, that sort of a, 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 Blip. I mean, we just we just are missing that data thus far.
0: So um, I didn't tell you this beforehand, but uh, my undergrad degree was in, well, it was in biological sciences, but I, I specialized, ended up specializing in microbiology. Um, and my uh, university basically it has a big probiotic center um, that got set up. Now, this is a very, very long time ago when I did my undergrad degree. Um, so uh-huh. many, many years ago, When that was that area was starting to kind of become more popular, the whole area of probiotics, we Mm -hmm. admitted that we knew very very little, and we knew that for you know for example, you know we can only uh, look at some bacteria because we can only culture some bacteria once we take them out of the digestive system, and just because of the huge variety of bacteria that we have, um, it's almost impossible to know a lot or feel confident about what we know about the gut. Microbiome is that right? Is it is it just such a complicated area? There's so many things going on. Is it just two different? What what do we know at the moment? Do we feel confident with what we know, or is 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 it still a very very um, let's say nascent field at the moment?
1: I would say it's still very nascent. um, And oftentimes we're putting the cart before the horse. You know, we find a really cool observational study where, you know, a specific strain is enriched in some group of individuals, and then that's the next big thing. Like, that's gonna be the next probiotic. Um, And you're so right about, you know, the limitations with cell cultures, that previously they were estimating somewhere in the range of like 80% of the microbes just were not culturable. And so if we're using cell culture models, we're going to see extreme biases. The other limitation is that we're still relying really heavily on fecal samples, and fecal samples may be closely representative to what we see in the distal section of the colon, so um, the colon, the large intestine. So when we're taking a fecal sample, it's representative of what we would see sort of like right before the rectum. But, and, and, so, and, that, and in the colon, in the large intestine, we do see the vast majority of microbes um, in the digestive tract and the greatest diversity, the greatest variability but we're really missing what's going on in the more proximal sections of the large intestine and certainly what's going on in the small intestine. So you, do, you, you compound that fact so we know we're limited because we're using largely fecal samples. Um, early studies that were using cell culture were limited as well. You know, we've moved on to using, you know, stuff like 16S RNA um, and analyzing DNA, and so we can get more of the that and then, like, the omics approaches, you know, looking at metabolites and things that are being produced so we don't have to rely so heavily on cell culture models, and that was really what allowed us to um, – dive in really deep and start getting a better picture about what's going on with the microbiome. So I think that there are some things that we can say um, with, more, with greater confidence, because mechanistically it makes sense, and then it's also what we see being played out in observational studies and some of our um, intervention studies as well. Things like the importance of fiber for um, enriching what we know to be beneficial strains of bacteria and that um, plant intake correlates with uh, uh, microbial diversity in the gut. And that when we compare individuals from really rural agrarian societies versus those from westernized societies, that they tend to have a greater abundance and um, diversity of species in the gut. So those are some of the things that we can say with great confidence. We know because we've seen, uh, you know, mechanistically it makes sense, and then also in terms of what we have observed repeatedly, that physical activity is associated with increased microbial diversity. And then in most cases, when we talk about increased diversity, that's generally recognized to be a good thing. Just like any ecosystem, we want it to be diverse. These microbes are filling important metabolic niches that we can't actually overcome. Like if we were, uh, you know, raised germ-free like some of these mice are, we simply wouldn't thrive because we need them for immune function, for digestive function. Um, so those things I, I, we can say um, with confidence. But things like, you know, specific supplements, th- those effects, some of the things that are so overblown, like kombucha, um, fermented foods, we have very little evidence, and it's just we haven't, you know, we just haven't collected it yet. Some mechanistic studies are now coming out looking at, you know, why we might see some benefits to taking in fermented foods. It seems like they could be um, somewhat immuno, immunomodulatory, um, but again, you know, if we're looking at rodent models, if we're looking at cell culture models, those are going to have really significant limitations, and so we can't necessarily extrapolate to humans. Um, But then things like collagen and bone broth, um, glutamine supplementation, Just mechanistically, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And then in some cases, they do have studies on these that show that in a human, uh, in a human body, we just don't see the same things as what we would see in a cell culture model. Um, You know, collagen supplementation probably being one of the most significant that uh, people I think are drawing on some cell culture studies, um, where you know if you put uh, you know some concentration of like collagen peptides onto intestinal cells, we see an upregulation of tight junction protein. Um, But the other thing is that, you know, we have to look at what human models we're we're using as well. If you're looking at a healthy individual who's physically active and um, eating fruits and vegetables and, uh, you know, doesn't have any sort of um, known uh, bowel diseases, taking in uh, extra, you know, taking in extra collagen isn't necessarily going to have an effect because they're still within the normal ranges of tight junction protein to begin with. So it's sort of like an individual um, who's super, super lean, um and metabolically healthy taking a glucose disposal agent like you are really insulin sensitive taking a glucose disposal agent isn't going to do you any favors you don't have any issues with glucose disposal Mm -hmm. Um, so just some of those things that you know we have to be very i think um cautious about some of the extrapolations that we're making Um, and looking at what model we're using, you know, the dosing, uh, and then if we do see something like a reduction or an increase in tight junction protein expression, well, was it even to begin with outside of clinical norms? If a person goes from, you know, one end of healthy normal to another end of healthy normal, is that really a meaningful improvement?
0: And That's that's a very, very good point, because we do see a lot of studies that will show a significant change, but, you know, if you show a significant change Uh, within norms, it doesn't really make any clinical or any real difference on people whatsoever. eh? Um, What I would like to touch on is something you mentioned there. And we did get a lot of questions about this um, in advance. And a lot of people are very, very interested on your take on the recent upsurge in fermented foods, because we do see a lot of people talking about, let's say, probiotic yogurts. We hear people talking about um, fermented vegetables things like sauerkraut things like kimchi um, I'm going to be completely honest with you I have made my own kimchi before it was delicious I don't know if it improved my gut. it was amazing though um, <laughs> we have all of these things that are incredibly popular kombucha is another one what are your thoughts on those what is the body of evidence saying regarding kind of those fermented foods specifically or is the research saying anything has any research been done on any of these?
1: Yeah, there actually have been. Um, and I do see a person wrote, there, wrote down there about um, fecal microbiome transplant. It would be awesome to talk about that if we have a second. But, um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we probably have the most promising evidence for fermented dairy. And dairy as a whole, and this is probably going to, like, trigger a bunch of people and make them upset because, like, dairy is so under fire right now. Um, <laughs> but whether we're looking at intervention studies or epidemiological studies, um, we find that dairy intake does seem to be at least modestly associated with um, either neutral or, or um, slightly beneficial health effects. So that could be something like reduced risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, improvements in body composition, Um, There have been, you know, limited studies looking at things like Mood, which I find to be interesting. There's really no mechanistic explanation for that, and it's still just emerging. But, uh, but on the whole, I would say if there were an item that you wanted to experiment with that has the most um, evidence to support its use, it would probably be fermented dairy. Uh, second to that, looking into fermented um, fruits, vegetables, and grains. So things like sauerkraut, kimchi, um, some of the sort of like uh, Um, vegetarian protein replacements, Um, not as much evidence on those. Some of that is due to uh, conflicting um, or confounding variables. So if we... uh, In in some cultures, they eat pickled and fermented vegetables, but they eat those as a side dish with, like, their alcohol intake. And so, (laughs) you know, alcohol is obviously a carcinogen, and so that might mitigate some of the potential positive effects of taking in um, that, uh, you know, those fermented fruits and and veggies. Uh, We don't have so much on the fermented fruits. Um, Interestingly, I I read a study that looked at um, comparing, like, gin versus um, red wine versus... uh, dealcoholized wine. Um, I think that's the only thing they've really looked at, you know, to a great extent, looking into fermented fruits. But again, alcohol is a carcinogen, so any potential benefit um, may be mitigated by the fact that you're, you're you know, incurring some risk there, um, unless you're having like, very, very small amounts. And it was sort of like, you know, with, with resveratrol, the potential beneficial compound in red wine, like you'd have to have so much red wine that you'd be probably a functional alcoholic before you could see the benefits of resveratrol. Um, so, um, then looking at there are some studies on um, uh, again with with fermented grains um, and fermented dairy uh, that reduces potentially the FODMAP content. So some of those fermentable um, saccharides that can cause people gas and bloating, whether we're looking at a fiber or looking at lactose. So we can reduce the FODMAP content and make those foods a little bit more digestible. So that could be a potential benefit. And then there's also a potential benefit of, of those bacteria increasing the micronutrient content because they can potentially produce small amounts of like vitamin K, for example. Um, so, you know, small, modest benefits if it's increasing our fruit and vegetable intake and increasing fiber intake, that's probably just an additional benefit that's not necessarily associated with it specifically being fermented. Um, but, you know, increasing fruit and veggie intake, I'm all about it. Like, those are good trends to me. Even if it's a fad and it's getting people to eat more vegetables, that's okay.
0: <laughs> very, very true. Uh, one thing I've always been concerned about with that is the fact that, you know, you get a lot of people trying to do um, all of this at home and making their homemade yogurts and their homemade um kimchi or whatever and you know I think it's great you know I love I'm, I'm all for people getting cooking um there always is that slight risk that you mess up the fermentation process and you end up giving yourself food poisoning um yes. so yeah that's you know I'm, I'm you're not going to hear me recommending it here uh unless you're making kimchi because it's amazing um
1: yeah. same thing same with raw milk people have asked about that and I'm like man you know like there are really potent pathogens that love to hang out in a cold environment. People think like, oh, if it's refrigerated, it's safe. No. Listeria will totally hang out in your raw milk and in your homemade yogurt. If you don't produce it correctly, put it in the fridge. That is not going to kill it and you'll get super sick. So um, that's the other thing to consider, you know, when we're looking at um, taking in fermented foods. If it's pasteurized, you don't have anything to worry about, those microbes are going to be killed, but then you won't necessarily have the, you know, potential benefit of taking in a a probiotic food, so probiotics being live, um, uh, beneficial microbes. If it's unpasteurized and has not been produced correctly, then you run the risk of also ingesting pathogenic microbes. You know, so just something to consider, especially if you, you know, like the risk is always um, greater for individuals who are immunocompromised, elderly, pregnant, young children. So just, you know, things to consider when you're doing that at home. Um, it's probably just as safe to go out or it's probably a little bit safer to go out and get a, um, you know, a cultured fermented dairy beverage that's been commercially produced, it will still contain those um, live active cultures. We just don't know how much. And so, you know, that's the other thing. Are you getting them in an amount that actually makes a difference, considering that you have tens of trillions of microbes in there? If you take in, like, a million a day, does that make any kind of significant difference? Um, It looks like in individual and healthy individuals, not really. Okay, that's good to know.
0: Um, There are... a. a we have a a lot of stuff that I want to talk about, but I'm I'm going to, I'm going to go with one straight off just because I know a lot of people are going to be asking about it. Um, And that's obviously there's been a huge surge in, we've just spoken about probiotic foods, fermented foods, but there's a lot of probiotic supplements out there on the market. Um, And some people are wondering, so obviously we have probiotics, we have prebiotics, we have symbiotics. Um, Would you be able to kind of give us a little bit of uh, an overview of what they are and What's the science telling us at the moment about, you know, whether they're beneficial or not and what can they be beneficial for?
1: Mm-hmm. So the probiotic would be the actual organism. And the definition of probiotics has changed a little bit. Previously we thought that they really needed to be live uh, microbes that were ingested for uh, the purpose of, of, uh, improving, uh, host health. Now there's a, a new trend in, um, the spore-forming bacteria. So they don't necessarily have to be alive, um, but they, the, they form these spores, which are sort of um, uh, nascent, um, immature, uh, uh, sort of like seeds. You can think of it sort of like seedlings that can give rise to then um, live bacteria. Um, so they may not necessarily have to be live or viable uh, in order to exert some effect, because they may be able to still have immunomodulatory effects, or interact with other microbes in the system. A prebiotic would be the food that feeds those microbes. So in most cases, that's going to be, uh, the easiest things to think about would be fibers, especially soluble fiber that are highly fermentable. So those serve as an energy source for the bacteria, but it doesn't have to be fiber, they can can feed off of other saccharides, simple sugars, um, lactose as well. So um, those would be the, that's the food for the microbes. A symbiotic is sold as a probiotic plus a prebiotic, and I know that there are some new um, products on the market that are probiotics that come sort of encased in in prebiotic, uh, in a prebiotic. Um, Mechanistically, that does seem to make sense, especially if it's enterically coated. That means that they're going to be protected against the stomach acid. So um, one of the, the great modulators of the microbial colonies in our gut is pH. So that's why we see very few microbes, very low diversity in the stomach, and the proximal small intestine. And then as we get into the large intestine, farther away from the acidic environment, we see that there's a greater abundance of microbes and a greater diversity, because they don't have to sort of fight against that acidic pH. So if something is enterically coated, it probably will have better survivability and will actually end up in the large intestine. But we don't actually know where those microbes are taking up residence. There's really not a, there's not a way for us to determine that they're going to wait you know in, until they get to the large intestine. Um, there have been some studies that have shown that uh, high-dose uh, probiotic supplementation with lactobacilli actually led to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, and that was associated with um, uh, inappropriate levels of lactate circulating in the blood, and so that was leading to some really unpleasant side effects. There are other studies that have shown that some individuals are actually resistant to probiotic supplementation. Um, so, as it, so, they, they character they were able to characterize um, the colonies of the cecum. So that's where the small intestine meets the large intestine, sort of a a hotbed of microbial growth in the gut. Um, And they found that in some individuals who had really diverse uh, microbial colonies in the cecum, they actually sort of uh, prevented enrichment of the probiotic bacteria. Now, what was interesting is that all individuals saw equal fecal enrichment uh, of those probiotic strains. But when they actually sampled from inside of the intestines, they found that some individuals saw no change in response to probiotic supplementation. There are other studies that showed that probiotic supplementation after taking antibiotics actually delayed reestablishment of the previous uh, profile of the microbiome, and that could be problematic as well. So um, the where we do see some potential beneficial effects are in certain strains of probiotics. They seem to be effective for reducing the severity and sort of um, flare-ups or remission associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, that that so, so things like Crohn's, colitis may help with that. Um, may see some relief of um, IBS, so either uh, chronic constipation or diarrhea, um, some improvements there. Now, prebiotics may actually be a little bit problematic for individuals who have IBS or or irritable bowel syndrome because they can be very gas-forming. And so that's where the low FODMAP intervention can come in. And so, again, it's very context-dependent. I think that the potential effects of probiotics right now are a little bit overblown. People are thinking that they can use them for mood modulation, um, for uh, individuals with autism spectrum disorder, um, uh, weight loss, uh, metabolic health, uh, and these things. There's really not strong evidence to show that they have any effect. In fact, some of the most um, interesting recent system ana- systematic analyses that have come out looking at probiotic supplementation and mood disorders really shows a 50-50 split. That about half the studies show an effect, half the studies show no effect. Um, So, and it could, and there are a lot of different, you know, methodological reasons for that, that, um, you know, the dosing is different and the individuals are different. And when we're adding one strain to a bunch of different people's uh, microbiomes, they all have very, uh, you know, fingerprint different uh, microbial profiles. And the effects of that probiotic are going to be largely dependent on the environment in which we're placing them. So, if an individual has a microbial colony that is not going to allow for enrichment, we're just not going to see an effect.
0: Okay. Wow. Um, I think one thing that you mentioned there that was that I think will have blown a lot of people's minds um, is, and I've heard you mention it on, on other podcasts, is that um, taking a probiotic uh, after a course of antibiotics, which a lot of people are familiar with the concept. You know, you you take a probiotic to help reestablish, you know, your 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 gut microbiome after taking antibiotics, which have wiped it out. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're saying that some studies have shown that it can actually prevent you from reestablishing your healthy gut flora.
1: Yeah, yeah. There are actually quite a few studies that show that there may be no effect at all. Um, And there are a couple that have shown that even though we we may see changes afterwards, but it's not that it reestablishes the previous microbial profile that you yeah, you may see an enrichment in that specific strain. But I think what people miss out on, and I, I view this really as, in, as looking at any ecosystem, that when we introduce a new organism, even if we have good intentions, like, OK, we're going to introduce um, this animal that will eat this other animal that's become an invasive species. Well, now there's a potential for that new animal that you've just introduced to become problematic in itself. And we see that all over the world, that we end up with these invasive species that cause significant perturbations within that ecosystem. And it can be the same thing when we're looking at the microbiome, that even if we don't, you know, and and the other limitation too is, you know, often we're looking just at who's there, not necessarily just what they're doing. So we also have to see, um, I think secondarily, okay, there may not be a change in the profile of bacteria, after taking a probiotic, but we need to take a step further and look at, are there changes in genes and gene expression? And that actually has been shown um, that even in, if an individual doesn't experience enrichment, those, those strains of bacteria that we ingested as a probiotic seem to go in one end and out the other, they can have transient effects on gene expression in the gut um, that can last after uh, enrichment or excuse me, after supplementation of the probiotic. Uh, so there are just so many unanswered questions and it's like, we really assume that they're just safe and pretty innocuous, not to say that I'm anti-probiotic, um, and, and I do and have, um, you know, I have taken um, one of the most, uh, ev- what I feel to be a very evidence-based probiotic is actually a yeast, um, S. boulardii, that it, it appears to be extremely effective for um, preventing and reducing the severity of diarrhea associated with traveling and with antibiotics. Um, and it makes sense because it's a yeast, it's not going to be uh, affected by the antibiotics. Sort of another thing to think about is when you're taking an antibiotic, that is um going to potentially mitigate the, the the beneficial effects of a probiotic if you're taking them concurrently because probiotic is in most cases going to be a bacteria. Um, but the S. Bulardi as a yeast is not going to be um, affected by the antibiotic and, and seems to be you know, pretty effective for um, reducing diarrhea. But when we look at the actual effects of probiotics, they're pretty limited. And what we've seen consistently, IBS, IBD, diarrhea, And then some emerging um, promising studies on athletes um, and upper respiratory tract infections. But when it comes to things like weight loss or um, performance, really no benefit to that, Uh, or people say things like healing the gut, I don't even know what that is supposed to mean. Because, like, (laughs) when we say the gut, like... That's an entire organ system. Like, you've got a lot going on there. And are we talking about that, or are we talking about the microbiome? It's one of those, like, just absolutely meaningless statements that everyone uses, and I, I just still can't figure out exactly what they mean. So probiotics don't – we can't say – I, like, I would say probiotics are not going to heal your gut because I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so was know what you want to do first. Um, I think it's incredibly probably naive of us, let's say, as, just as a culture at the moment um, to think that, you know, you've mentioned the microbial diversity. We've got literally thousands of species um, numbering in the trillions of bacteria and, and other microorganisms living in our gut. It's very, very kind of naive of us to think that supplementing with one single strain or maybe a handful of strains is going to have a, let's say, um, a well-understood effect, um, let alone the desired effect in our uh, our digestive systems. Um, We just have so much more to learn. Um, Would I be right in saying that?
1: Oh, I I agree wholeheartedly, absolutely. I love the way that you put that. Yeah, Uh, because especially that well-understood, it may have an effect, but why? We're not quite sure.
0: (laughs) So a lot more research needs to be done. Um, one thing somebody mentioned here in the, um, a, in the comments is on uh, fecal transplants. And mm-hmm. I think that is a fascinating area. Um, yeah. I don't know what you're going to think yourself, but uh, would you be able to kind of give a little bit of an explanation of what fecal transplants actually are? And what, uh, what kind of research is being done on them at the moment? And what do we know from fecal transplants?
1: yeah oh, these are really incredible. So we can use them um, as a way to recapitulate symptoms in rodent models. And this was really the first way that we were able to characterize the role of the microbiome in obesity and metabolic dysregulation. So a fecal transplant is just what it sounds like. <laughs> we're taking poop. we're taking we're taking poop, yeah. and there was actually a study back when I was still in grad school and they called it repupulant. Because they were going to repopulate the gut, <laughs> so we're taking fecal uh, processed um, encapsulated fecal matter from a donor and putting it into a recipient. So in rodents, we took mice that were germ-free, so they were reared without any, uh, without a gut microbiome, without any bacteria, completely sterile. This is not uh, a surrogate for human anatomy and physiology. Humans are never going to be germ-free, but it's a way for us to control exactly which microbes are placed into that mouse and come up with something as close to cause and effect as we could potentially uh, establish. So they took these germ-free mice and they transplanted the microbiota from individuals who were lean and then those who were obese. So the germ-free mice that received the lean transplant remained lean. The germ-free mice that received the transplant from the obese individuals rapidly developed obesity either through increased food intake, which is not so much of a surprise, or increased energy harvesting from the diet. So that means that um, calories matched via intake does not necessarily mean that calories absorbed are also matched. Um, So if or energy harvested will be matched. So in, in, so some microbes, are, many microbes, are capable of fermenting fibers and then producing short-chain fatty acids. So while we as humans don't have the digestive enzymes that allow us to harvest energy from fibers, we can't break those chemical bonds, the bacteria do it for us, and they then increase the amount of energy that we can harvest from the foods that we're taking in that may be up to about 10% of our ingested calorie. So it's not um, so much that it would, you know, potentially just completely prevent us from being able to manage our weight, but it is just one of those factors that accounts, you know, that that there's individual uh, variability in, you know, two people who are um, anthropometrically similar, one, and, you know, physically active, one may have to eat a little bit less than the other person to have the same results because of that potential factor.
0: I, I think it's very, very interesting because a lot of people talk about um, the gut microbiota and using it as a, let's say, a, a method for you know, uh, fighting against obesity, let's say. Mm-hmm. And what you said mm-hmm. there is that certain microbiota um, can actually, let's say, they make, uh I want to say this correctly, they make digestion more efficient. Um, and by okay. making digestion more efficient, improving digestion, let's say, they're actually helping you to get more energy out of the food that you're eating, which can actually mm-hmm. contribute to obesity. Does that yes. sound
1: Yeah, yeah. So it can make you a little bit, it can increase your predisposition to extracting more calories or more energy from your diet. But it can go the other direction too. So um, there are there were some interesting studies done on children uh, from Malawi who were failing to thrive even after um, being given a dietary supplement that was very energy dense, and they found that they had a form of dysbiosis in which the microbial colony was premature. It was underdeveloped for the age of the children. So your microbiome may make you more or less likely to um, extract energy from the diet. So while it's sort of become kind of a scapegoat and, you know, we have to heal the gut first or, you know, you can't, you know, lose weight because of your gut health, I think that's really a misapplication of what that data is showing us, that yes, it does modify your ability to harvest energy from the diet, but that just means, you know, it doesn't mitigate um, thermodynamics. It doesn't mean that, oh, calories don't count for you anymore. It just means that you probably have to eat a little bit less and or move a little bit more to get the same results. If you have a microbiome that's really good at harvesting energy. But guess what? If, like, a famine strikes us, you're going to do really well if you have to live off very fibrous foods because um, you're going to be able to extract energy. So um, so that was that was really the first time, like I said, that we were able to characterize the role of the microbiome in obesity and then going forward in metabolic dysregulation, because we found that there were certain um, constituents from uh, the cell wall of certain bacteria that can bind to receptors, um, immune receptors that are uh, found on skeletal muscle, and, and induce metabolic dysregulation. So, basically, an inability to switch between carbohydrates or fatty acids and effectively oxidize fatty acids. Uh, now, as a as a therapy, so fecal microbiome transplant. Unfortunately, um, so it was it was an experimental therapy, um, and has recently been discontinued at least in the United States because an individual actually died um, as a result of receiving a transplant. So this was an immunocompromised individual who ended up um, receiving a transplant from someone who had a microbe that you know perhaps was um, not found during the analysis, or it happened to be. Um, a, um, a, a, an opportunistic pathogen that in that person's microbial colony that was already existing was able to um, cause uh, disease. And so um, these, the, the microbial transplants are not without risk, uh, but it was extremely effective for treatment of C. diff. So, um, you
0: know. So, so you're saying because of that one instance, that one case where somebody dies, the, the, the entire procedure has been discontinued in the, in the U.S.? Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah um, all the mental treatments. Yep.
0: Wow. Um, besides like treating something like uh, C. diff, is there, were there any other, let's say promising avenues that, um, uh, fecal transplants were, were hoping to go down?
1: You know, they, they had looked at it in other disease states as well. Um, other inflammatory bowel diseases, and um, it just didn't seem to be largely effective for those. It was like really, I mean, in C diff, Absolutely. It was, it was really impressive, really amazing how rapidly um, and how thoroughly it would knock out C. diff infections. So extremely promising for that. Um, I know of at least one small study where they transplanted um, uh, fecal microbiota from uh, lean to obese individuals, you know, thinking that perhaps if we can do this in rodents, that we could do this in in humans as well. Um, And that didn't pan out. So uh, we can't Thus far, we can't, you know, reduce um, obesity or or increase weight loss through fecal microbiome transplants. Um, But yeah, for it seemed that C. Diff was pretty much the number one thing. Um, But yeah, as as of right now, those trials have been ended, and um, I think it just remains to be seen. It might be something that you know people are still sort of doing, (laughs) like black market. (laughs) Um, You know, I and I know of some people who have um, taken things into their own hands and like done this in their kitchens. Like, you know, they've, they've
0: done a poop transplant in their kitchen. Mm Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: I just want, I just want to put out a, a public service announcement right now. Um, if anybody does this, don't do this for one thing, please do not do a poop transplant at home. Okay. Um, if you do, do not blame either of us, okay?
1: No, yes. um, we told you not to do it. <laughs> if,
0: if you blame anybody, blame Gabrielle because, you know, she said it. But um, don't, don't eat your own poop, okay? Um, anyway, right, let's move on to uh, something that's not poop-related, which is going to be very, very difficult on a conversation that's mostly dwelling around poop. Um, okay, so... <laughs> One thing I wanted to uh, kind of ask you, because because this is such a huge area, um, and because it is you know it is getting so popular right now, and everybody's talking about it, and everybody has an opinion, and everybody has a remedy. Are there any, let's say, gut health practices? And I'm going to I'm going to say the next word, rolling my eyes as far back as I can. Any gut health protocols um, that are really, let's say, that you find incredibly annoying or that you just think this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you can be concise or you can go off and a rant if you want a um, rant would be nice.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, there are so many. Okay, so I have to start first with something that I had shared in my story the other day. Um, the first would be like the, the stereotypical gut health assessment that you get online where uh, the your questions are like, have you ever experienced fatigue or acne? Or mental fogginess, or have you ever been in a bad mood? It's like, oh, <laughs> these are the things that happen when you're a human being. Like sometimes you'll get a pimple, sometimes you'll have some gas. Like, that does not mean that there is anything wrong with your digestive tract or that you have dysbiosis. And some and, and like the 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 whole reason you know that we're experiencing gas and bloating is that we have live microorganisms inhabiting our digestive tract, and they produce gas. So that is actually normal. Now that being said, it can be a very uncomfortable, if if taken to extremes, it can be a quality of life issue, certainly can be super problematic. But the gut health assessments that are like, here are just five things that like everyone ever who's alive has experienced, and then we're just gonna blame those on your gut. And that way we can make you feel like you're broken so that you'll buy my protocol and I will fix you. So that's my, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is to just apply absolutely everything. And I had read this, I'm not, I'm not going to take credit for it because I read it. It's on my profile or it's on my Instagram. I just can't remember who said it, but, um, that the gut microbiome is the new, um, conspiracy theory of our industry. You know, it is like, Mm. it's the gut. You know, they don't want you to know that it's your gut health and like everything influences uh, gut health. I think it was Food Science Babe that posted, um, you know, if you want consumers to be really afraid of something, tell them it affects the gut microbiome. If you want them to buy (laughs) something, tell them it affects the gut microbiome. Um, So we've just all arrows are pointing at the gut microbiome right now. So that gets a little bit frustrating in terms of the protocols. I would say some that make the least amount of sense would be like detoxes. Um, as if our, our organs are like filters that get clogged with things and we have to rinse them out. And um, mixing, like, the alkaline, you know, you're taking your alkaline water with your apple cider vinegar and, like, your lemon juice. And it's like, okay, the pH is not, like, for one thing, if you're mixing alkaline with acid, neutralizes. But also, like, nothing's more acidic <laughs> than stomach acid. But now I'm finding that the pendulum has swung because I saw one of my one of my old students um, who was just amazing send an Instagram story of a person – be drinking um, i think like we shouldn't be drinking alkaline water now because that is going to kill the bacteria and we need to have a different kind of we need to have neutral water so we need to have water that's neutral ph so that it doesn't kill off the bacteria so clearly we were wrong before with the alkaline water now it has to be neutral ph and it's just like we will never we will never learn So things like that, that just like mechanistically make absolutely zero sense. And the people who are selling them, it's just like, you just don't have an understanding of like basics of human anatomy and physiology. Like, please stop making recommendations. The things that I think are a little bit more um, insidious would be those that may have a mechanistic explanations, we may have seen something in a cell culture study um, that seems to make a little bit of sense, or we may have you know one study ever that has shown um, some, you know, some, some significant effect. But that significant effect was like we mentioned earlier, within normal realms, within normal ranges. so we went from like one end of normal and healthy to the other end of normal and healthy, with no actual um, clinical significance. Or when we take that out of cell culture and put it into an animal model or we try to put it into a human model, those, are not, uh, th- those findings aren't replicated. And so then, you know, is it really evidence-based? Or if we have just one study that's showing that something is antimicrobial, does that mean that it's going to be then an effective supplement for reducing, you know, um, a microbial overgrowth or something? And even looking at those tests, uh, you know, breath tests um, or tests for um, intestinal permeability the accuracy of those tests ranges greatly from like 20% to 90% I've seen for breath tests um, after reading several different papers and, and looking at the various estimates that they had, had delivered. Um, so just realizing that, you know, the accuracy with which we can measure these things is just okay at best, in my opinion. And then to come up with like a specific protocol using a bunch of different supplements and things like that. I mean, really, the basics are what we have the best evidence for, that we know that with individual, in individuals who have uh, IBS, yeah, doing the low FODMAP intervention, that actually seems to be really beneficial. So we reduce, low, we reduce FODMAP intake and then reintroduce, and it has to be done in a systematic way. And then you can kind of see, like, which of these carbohydrates are causing you the most gas and how much can you actually tolerate. There are certainly some probiotics that are effective in specific situations. There are whole lifestyle approaches that you can take. So, you know, uh, start with the basics. Are you eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains? Are you exercising? Are you um, managing sleep and stress? Because we know that stress does have an uh, an effect on, you know, circulating cortisol, which can uh, impact the gut microbiome. So those things, you know, taking it as a whole lifestyle approach – in my opinion, far more effective than trying to come up with, like, a supplement gut health protocol. And the other thing that I think this is just a personal philosophy, I don't make claims about healing the gut or changing the gut microbiome because I'm not personally test, testing those things. There's not a way that I can, I can certainly say, like, hey, visit a gastroenterologist if there's something that seems to be really problematic and it looks like we can't figure out, you know, it's not just a food thing there are valid tests that you can have done, but I'm not going to say, oh, I'm going to, um, you know, like modulate your gut microbiome because I'm not doing those – I'm not not making those measurements. You know, I can assess your digestive experience. How are you feeling when you're eating? How are you feeling when you're pooping? And then, you know, make claims, I guess, about helping you to improve those. But that's my other thing is that when people make claims about things – that they are not actually assessing, um, that I think is just a little bit disingenuous.
0: I I think some of that may, so there there seems to be a bit of a movement within, um, let's say evidence-based nutrition at the moment to take evidence-based in the wrong context in that I have found one paper that says this, this is a piece Mm -hmm. of evidence Therefore, what I'm going to prescribe to you is going to work to help you with whatever ails you. And like you said, it could be something that might be, it could be a mechanistic paper. It might be a paper that's done in cell lines. It might be a paper that shows, you know, one beneficial constituent being produced. And then you're extrapolating to suddenly this can cure a condition or help a condition or improve somebody's health. Um, It's something that... You know, personally, for me, I, I find very, very kind of frustrating in, um, in let's say, evidence-based nutrition because you get a lot of people who, who say they're evidence-based, um, but they're kind of basing all of their, their evidence off, you know, one or two cherry-picked papers um, or off something that they heard on a, uh, a documentary on YouTube or something like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Because we all know YouTube is the uh, source of all knowledge. YouTube and Netflix. Netflix is really good, Um, especially for nutrition. Um, I did get one particularly uh, good question that I want to touch on before I kind of start kind of bringing this uh, to a close. Um, And I think it's something that will be very, very relevant to, um, uh, I know, to a lot of my followers anyway, and probably to a lot of yours as well, because um, well, there was one thing I wanted to ask you. So, um, you—I know for that you—you um, you competed in physique, um, and you've also competed um, in powerlifting. So, yes. you are—is there anything that you don't do? Just out of curiosity, um, because, you know you're a researcher extraordinaire, nutrition coach, um, you know digital nomad, all of these things. Um, yeah, anything you don't do, anything you're not good at, just to make me feel better.
1: Um, there are plenty of things that I'm not good at yet but I could be if I
0: wanted to. Okay, right. That doesn't help at all. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So modest. Anyway, moving on to this question. So it's really, really good. I'm going to actually read it out verbatim. Um, So I've read that every time we eat, we open ourselves up to inflammation. It's a natural occurrence within the digestive process. I'm trying to build some muscle so my meal frequency has increased. I'm worried about the long-term effects on my gut health by continuing to eat in this manner do you think eating like this will damage my gut health in the long run by incre- increasing inflammation within the body? Um, so just kind of like for a little bit of context, obviously, uh, people who are like a lot of athletes, a lot of people who are trying to put on a lot of muscle mass, we do eat, um, a large amount of food, obviously, but we also eat quite frequently throughout the day. Um, and that like a lot of people who will be eating like that will notice some digestive issues. Um, do we know anything about how that may potentially be affecting the gut microbiome at all?
1: Um, in terms of meal frequency, now what we've found for things like um, intermittent fasting or fasting mimicking diets, there are small effects on some inflammatory markers. Does that mean that fasting is anti-inflammatory or that eating is pro-inflammatory? No. Inflammation is indeed a natural um, response to various perturbations. It allows us to adapt to exercise. In fact, when we take mouse models that are um, knockouts, so genetic knockouts of specific immune receptors um, or, or aspects of the immune system, they actually don't adapt to exercise. They obviously cannot fight off infections. So an immune response is normal. And we fluctuate within, you know, the uh, like subclinical norms of of inflammation. And yeah, it,
0: uh-huh. Sorry about that, everybody. Um, I did not realize that uh, Instagram only lets you do a live for an hour. Um, so we just went over the hour. We're not gonna to take too long. I'm just waiting for uh vitamin PhD for Gabrielle to get back onto us. Um, as soon as she is back, we will go live again. Um, hey everybody, good to see you all coming back. Very, very sorry for that little inconvenience. As soon as Gabrielle is back, we will be talking. Uh, remember, if any of you have any more specific questions that you would like to ask, please, please, please type them in down below. If you're liking what you're listening to, um, give us a bit of a like down here as well. Hello, everybody who's popping in. I'm going to see if Gabrielle is going to come back. There we go. Any now. Hello, everybody. Who- Who's joining back in?
1: Yay! Gabrielle, we're
0: back. <laughs> I'm very sorry about that. What happened was I got a message, and this is a terrible warning. I didn't realize this. Uh, you can only do an Instagram live for an hour. Um, oh, wow. okay. Okay. Um, so we're back on. I will not keep uh, keep you for too much too too much longer. You've been very very generous with your time, and I really appreciate that. Um, so we were talking about, uh, frequency fast, uh, fasting inflammation. Um, yes. I'll leave that with you.
1: <laughs> yes. So I think where I left off was saying, you know, inflammation is, um, a, an essential part of allowing us to, uh, respond and adapt to various perturbations. We can see some Postprandial—that means after meal inflammation—and it tends to be elevated more so after a very high-fat meal. So um, what we would do, what we what we did, this was in mice and also in humans, we would actually feed them a couple um, breakfast sandwiches. Now the mice had just a habitual high-fat diet, but in humans, we feed them a couple really high-fat meal breakfast sandwiches, uh, uh, high-fat breakfast sandwiches. So like a, a breakfast biscuit with like really fatty pork sausage on it. We would have them eat a few of those. And then we would measure uh, what's called endotoxin in the blood. So one endotoxin is lipopolysaccharide. So that's what I had mentioned earlier is a constituent of the uh, cell wall of certain bacteria And when it um, binds to a receptor called a toll-like receptor, that causes the release of uh, uh, cytokines, of inflammatory um, chemical signaling molecules. And so we find that uh, high-fat diet is associated with an increase in circulating LPS. Uh, We call that metabolic endotoxemia. And in individuals who have obesity and type 2 diabetes, we tend to find that they have greater levels of circulating LPS as well as the uh, increased number of those receptors. So that's one way that we can really link the gut microbiome to metabolic disease, to insulin resistance, to type 2 diabetes, to this chronic low-grade inflammation that can certainly be problematic. But if you're taking a person who is... um, uh, physically active, who's insulin sensitive, who does not have um, hypertrophied fat cells, who's you know relatively lean or within normal body weight ranges, they probably are not going to have an issue with this chronic uh, low-grade inflammation or with insulin resistance. Um, now that may become a little bit more of a problem if you know if they're really bulking and they super super bulk for a long period of time. Certainly, um, then you know that's 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 more of a risk. We can see some postprandial, that means after meal, inflammation, and it tends to be elevated more so after a very high fat meal. So um, what we would do, what we what we did, this was in mice and also in humans, we would actually feed them a couple um, breakfast sandwiches. Now, the mice had just a habitual high-fat diet. But in humans, we feed them a couple really high-fat meal breakfast sandwiches, uh, uh, high-fat breakfast sandwiches. So like a, a breakfast biscuit with like really fatty pork sausage on it. We would have them eat a few of those. And then we would measure uh, what's called endotoxin in the blood. So one endotoxin is lipopolysaccharide. So that's what I had mentioned earlier is a constituent of the uh, cell wall of certain bacteria. And when it um, binds to a receptor called a toll-like receptor, that causes the release of uh, uh, cytokines, of inflammatory um, chemical signaling molecules. And so we find that uh, high-fat diet, is associated with an increase in circulating LPS. Uh, We call that metabolic endotoxemia. And in individuals who have obesity and type 2 diabetes, we tend to find that they have greater levels of circulating LPS as well as the uh, increased number of those receptors. So that's one way that we can really link the gut microbiome to metabolic disease, to insulin resistance, to type 2 diabetes, to this chronic low-grade inflammation that can certainly be problematic. But if you're taking a person who is um, uh, physically active, who's insulin sensitive, who does not have um, hypertrophied fat cells – Who's you know relatively lean or within normal body weight ranges, they probably are not going to have an issue with this chronic uh, low grade inflammation or with insulin resistance. Um, now that may become a little bit more of a problem if, you know, if they're really bulking and they super, super bulk for a long period of time, certainly, um, then, you know, that's, that's, that's more of a risk. But just in terms of meal frequency itself, so just eating in general in general is not going to induce a problematic level of inflammation. Um, you know, it would be, if we even do see it, it would be something, you know, very, like not even what we would see, it like after exercise. And we don't find that post-exercise inflammatory window um, to be problematic. It's an essential, essential part of adapting to um, exercise and improving over time. Um, but I would say, you know, still we want to make sure that if we are in a caloric excess, that we're ensuring that we're getting sufficient fiber and that the total um, fat content of the diet, it seems to be that when we're in, in research studies, the cutoff to um, sort of a, a – um, A metabolically challenging diet is about 40% calories from fat. So I would say, you know, it's prudent and also in keeping with the American Heart Association uh, recommendations of less than 35% calories from fat down around 30%. um, You know, that's probably a prudent recommendation. Um, The saturated fat content of the diet does also seem to play a role in terms of just cardiovascular disease risk and also um, uh, microbial diversity. There was actually an interesting study that just came out um, that compared the diets of uh, endurance athletes to those who were doing bodybuilding. The bodybuilders were probably bulking because they were eating like 180 grams of fat a day. And greater levels of fat intake were inversely correlated with bifidobacteria. So that means the more fat they were eating, the less beneficial bifidobacteria they had. In the endurance athletes, the greater amount of protein they were eating, the less microbial diversity they had. So it could be that, you know, both in both groups they had um, deficient fiber. They were deficient in fiber. Um, so they're only taking in about 15 grams of fiber per day. Um, So that could be another factor, that it's not just a single macronutrient. It's actually the total contribution of macronutrients and then also how much fiber you're taking in. um, And those all together play a role in shaping the microbiome. And there's also even a diet and exercise interaction there as well. So, um, we, you know, again, that's an area that's so new, we really can't say anything with great certainty. Um, but what's, what's not so new is, you know, the correlation between um, uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and um, uh, metabolic dysregulation in the gut. So, you know, just I think by, by maintaining um, less than an obese um, body type that you probably will prevent some of the chronic inflammation that could arise from having, you know, habitual high fat intake.
0: I'm sorry. So basically, eat well, exercise, don't get too overweight. This this is yeah. this is like oh, kind of out of out of left field advice out advice right now. Um, guys, I don't know how you're going to take this. Um, <laughs> we 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 may be releasing some information that no one has ever heard of before right here. Um yeah. but, here first okay okay Mm -hmm. gabby changing the world um (laughs) but 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 this this kind of segues on to um what i think is, is something that everybody really wants to get out of out of you know listening to you is from a realistic um let's say pragmatic perspective what can we actually do to let's say maintain a healthy gut microbiome um Uh, yeah, what what should we be doing kind of like in a step-by-step pattern? And somebody actually said, um, and it was a very, very good term, they used uh, from a hierarchical approach, what's our best step to do and what steps should we be taking?
1: Um, Well, okay, I have some, (laughs) this is kind of bad news. (laughs) Oh, no. Go back in time and ask your parents to please eat, uh, or your mom, while she's pregnant with you, eat plenty of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and get a lot of fiber um, while she's pregnant with you. And then if she can uh, give birth to you vaginally and if she can breastfeed you and if she can avoid it, don't give you antibiotics unless you really need them from a young age. Um, Okay.
0: It's right here. Step one, invent time Time machine.
1: machine. Yes. yes. After that, um, obviously, you know, we don't and – then, and then when they are um, weaning you, uh, in, first introduce vegetables, so you get a taste for those, and then fruits, um, so that you're not kind of, you know, only want the fruits because they taste really sweet, um, but, you know, give you uh, plenty of whole grains and, and, and um, what we call um, microbe-accessible carbohydrates – so fiber, resistant starch, um, really all of the, the carbohydrates that those microbes want to utilize for energy um, provide plenty of those. Once you're grown up and uh, it's too late, your parents have already ruined you. You can blame them for all of the issues that you're having now. <laughs> um, but it looks like the best things you can do are just what, I mean, it's literally nothing sexier than physical activity, not too much. Um, But, you know, in fitting with, you know, World Health Organization, recommendations for exercise, um, uh, specifically, we've got a lot more data on on cardiovascular exercise, so endurance exercise, although, you know, I'm sure resistance training will will probably show to be beneficial as well. Um, So physical activity, uh, a diet that is high in those MACs, so fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes. Um, If you find that you are uncomfortably gassy and bloated or constipated or have diarrhea, don't bother with the, you know, IgG food sensitivity tests. Just look for a list of high FODMAP foods and, and compare it against your habitual diet. And just kind of remove and reintroduce those one at a time and see if you can improve your symptoms that way, because that's usually what it is. But you still want to make sure that you're getting plenty of fiber in your diet and plenty of those microbe-accessible carbohydrates. When you are choosing um, protein sources, you know, previously we thought that red meat was the primary um, sort of causative factor in the production of uh, TMAO, which is a marker of of cardiovascular disease risk. Um, But recent studies have shown that actually fish ingestion also increases uh, TMAO production to a similar level. So this is not to say that we need to be vegan. It's just that there's more evidence mounting that we need to also include plant sources of protein as well. And that's as much as we can say about that right now, because that was a really surprising piece of data that not a lot of people um, have looked into. And, um, you know, I can send you that. I can send you there a couple of references on that um, that I thought Obviously. were really compelling. Yeah. And I have, a, you know, I, I talk so much about being plant centric. So it's not necessarily vegan, but, you know, making sure that you are eating plants at every meal, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, get the plants in there. Um, and then, yeah, like we had mentioned, you know, just regulating body weight. So, you know, having proper energy balance, um, mostly choosing less processed foods because it looks like that helps with satiety and also helps to is also associated with microbial diversity. Um, and I would say that's about it. I mean, it's really just practical information that, you know, seems to be um Sort of supported again and again, more so than any of the supplementations or any of the protocols or anything like that. Um, only really use pro- probiotics um, on a case-by-case basis if you have one of the issues for which they could help. So IBS, IBD, diarrhea, those are really the big ones. And then take the probiotic strain that is specific to that disease state. Because in some cases, like uh, L-Rhamnosus GG, Super effective for pediatric diarrhea, not effective for anything else. Like, they've tried, doesn't seem to work for anything else. So, I mean, and that's just kind of a money-saving tip, too. Like, don't spend a bunch of money on this stuff. If you are taking a probiotic but you're not feeding those bacteria with with microbe-accessible carbohydrates, they're not going to thrive. So you really have to fix your diet first and your lifestyle first. And it's the same thing with this new microbe that they've seen in marathon runners. I bet that's going to be the next probiotic. Well, lactate is its only carbon source. So, like, if you're not providing it with lactate, if you take it and then you sit on the couch, you're not exercising, it's going to die. It's not going to make you, it's not going to make you a professional marathon runner. That's just not how this works.
0: For, for anybody who's, who's not familiar with that study, there was a very, very cool study released about two or three weeks ago um, showing a, an enrichment of a specific bacterial strain in marathon runners that feeds off lactate, am I correct? Which turns yes. it into a, is it butyrate or? Pro-
1: uh, propionate.
0: Propionate, which can then yes. be uh, used as an energy source. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're very right. We will be seeing this bottled and used as the next sports supplement. Um, oh yeah you, you you mentioned something that i really liked, which is you said have a very very plant centric approach to um your nutrition um i often say you know i follow a fodmap diet uh, sorry not FODMAP. i follow a food uh, sorry what am i saying what do i do i follow a um a plant-based diet that also mm-hmm. includes uh meat and dairy and eggs and stuff like that um yes. what we mean is just get lots and lots of plants into your diet you do not need to go vegan, you know, if you want to for for whatever um reasons you may have, that's absolutely fine. From a nutritional perspective, it's not something that you essentially need to do, but you should be keeping a lot of plants in your diet and probably not following a uh, the carnivore diet. Um oh my gosh, I forgot <laughs> about that
1: one. That's probably one that's one of my biggest beefs. Ha 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 if, carnivore.
0: If, diet. If I, if I, is what watch listening to this later, um Gabby's eyes literally rolled back into her head what I said for <laughs> um <laughs> We, we won't get into details about that because we could go off on, on a completely uh, different tangent on a completely different plant, But uh, a carnivore, probably not um, a, uh, a great option. Um, Gary, you've been absolutely amazing with your time. It's like I, I could listen, literally speak to you about this for hours and hours and hours because you're a wealth of information on the subject. And it's absolutely amazing. I'm sure everybody who's been listening so far has been loving it. Um, for anybody, uh, who isn't already following you, how can they find you and, uh, you know, hear more about uh, what you do?
1: Yeah. So they can, um, follow me on Instagram as vitamin PhD. I also have a vitamin PhD Facebook page. Um, I have vitamin PhD nutrition.com, which is my website. That is really just, I I don't maintain it. Well, I probably could do a better job. I'm focusing so much on maintaining my microbiome. Um, But uh, (laughs) the the website is um, a list of podcasts that I've uh, spoken on um, and articles that I've written and um, linked to coaching. So if they're interested in coaching um, with me through vitamin PhD, um, they are welcome to shoot me an email, shoot me a DM. Um, they can sign up for the healthy platform that I use right off the bat and learn more about my coaching options there. Um, or if they want to work with me through RP, maybe they don't, it's not so much a gut health thing for them, but, you know, they're interested in, in sustainable, um, maintainable weight management. Absolutely would love to work with them on that. And um, I will be traveling around the U.K., so I'm going to be in London and then West Yorkshire from August 1st until the 21st. Um, then we'll be sort of gallivanting around i go back to to um dublin i'll be in seoul i'll be in thailand so um if you guys see that i'm traveling to other parts of the world come say hi
0: wow okay you really are a globetrotter um a digital nomad like we said earlier um i'm very much looking forward to seeing you this weekend because i'm going to be at the european powerlifting conference uh it's really looking forward to that um just so everybody knows i was speaking with garben who's
1: organizing this there are still a few tickets available so
0: if you are interested get on that okay you can hear gabby speaking you can hear a load of other fantastic minds in the whole area of strength sports um it's going to be an amazing event get your asses to that um on that gabrielle thank you so much for an absolutely amazing conversation i've absolutely loved it i think everybody else has as well um and i will be looking forward to seeing you um this weekend
1: Absolutely. It's my pleasure and I look forward to meeting you.
0: Take care. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on Instagram. It really helps get word of the podcast out to new listeners. If you ever want to watch the live version of these podcasts or ask a question for our guests, please follow me on Instagram at Be More Nutrition. Uh, I'll be back soon with our next episode. See you then.